February was a dry month for movies, so once again we're giving you a glimpse into what we've been watching for our own enjoyment. Are you just watching episode 113? What we've been watching. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're just, you know, each of us going to talk a little bit about what's been on our TV sets as we've, you know, carved out time to watch TV in our busy schedules. <laughs> February is a short month, so we figured we'd just touch on a few things and give our listeners a chance to chime in as well. If you are a member of our community on Facebook, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community and joining our group, you can get a preview of what we're going to be recording and take part if you so choose. So we have a, a few members who took advantage of me warning our <laughs> our <laughs> listeners in the group about what we were going to be recording on. And so I will be talking a little bit about that at the end of the episode. So we're going to dive right in. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't need to worry about spoilers because, you know. No. <laughs> You either have watched it or you haven't. So. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, Eve, tell me, what have you been watching? Well, I have been binging the old forensic TV show called Bones. I'd heard a lot about it through the years. I've heard many people talk about it. And it was a very popular show that went 12 seasons uh, in the early 2000s. And I had never seen it, never bothered to watch it. Though it does have one of the actors that I have known from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> <David>. years. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to see him in a different role. So that was kind of one of the reasons I had put off watching it. But I did get hooked and I'm towards the end of season eight. So I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I have been binging several uh, episodes a day. I usually just have it on in the background. So I'm not necessarily watching everything closely. A lot of things have struck me very interesting interesting with this TV show because it's about a forensic anthropologist who's a genius and she writes fictional books. And it's based on, I guess, fictional books written by a forensic <laughs> anthropologist. So imagine that. Yeah. Kind of has a bit of a castle feel in that because they have this whole concept of, you know, that he's writing in castle, he was writing books and then solving crimes. And in this one, she's writing books and solving crimes. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about Bones is that she is a, an atheist and she has absolutely no time for anything mythical or mystical or non-rational, non-scientific. Her whole life is, is basically, if it can't be proven by science, it doesn't exist. Yep. And she's teamed up with an FBI agent who is a Catholic and has a little bit more freer view of the world than she does. And... And the chemistry between them is quite good. But what puzzles me about it is that Brennan, the character, is a very terse and tactless kind of person. And I'm surprised she has any friends because of the way <laughs> she interacts with people. And at first I thought maybe she was supposed to be savant on, a, on the spectrum because a lot of times that's the way they are just because mm -hmm. that's the way they are. But they're not really presenting her that way. It's just she's just a person who – you know, she's so into science that she just doesn't connect with people on a personal level. And so she just has no tact and, and she doesn't care what other people think. And so 
I'm really kind of surprised that she has such strong friendships that the people who really stand up for her and care about her. Yeah, her her religion really is the, the scientific method, you know, empirical method. Yeah, yeah. And and it has gotten in her into trouble. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the show is that they don't make her view necessarily the right view. So there are times where she's challenged with that viewpoint and times when the other characters who have a more religious or mystical view of the world sometimes have a foothold in the plots of the episodes because they are willing to look. What was that Shakespearean line? There are more things in this world world that are dreamt of. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's one of the things that I have really liked about the show is that they're the philosophical discussions that come out of her atheistic viewpoint versus those in the in the rest of the cast, like the FBI agent who is Catholic. And then she has a her best friend in the lab uh, tends to be a little more mystical, has a psychic that she goes to. So they present <laughs> these different kind of worldviews that kind of clash with each other. And and they're honest about the clash, and they don't make any one view necessarily right, which I kind of appreciate. They they do sort of present it as like presenting the question for the audience and letting both Bones and Booth, you know, present mm-hmm. their sides. And I did right. I did appreciate that about that show. It's it's been a long. I, I watched it when it was when it was first on TV, mm, so it's okay. been a very long time. Yeah. Uh, since I've watched it, but I, David, uh, I can never pronounce his last name. Me neither, David which is why I've been avoiding Borin- it. <laughs> Borinans. 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 Uh, David B. David B. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he really does play chemistry well. Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, my first exposure to him was uh, when my wife was watching Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. And then and he then had his, his own yeah. spinoff of Angel, and he really does ensemble work very well. Mm-hmm. And that's right, he's in Seals now. Okay, going on to do Seals, and uh, it's ensemble work there. Uh, he really is a, a good actor for for that kind of work, and he he yeah. fit, fits well into to Bones, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he was perfectly casted, let's put it that way. Yeah. And the the rest of the cast is superb. I mean, about the only rotating characters that have been in there are the interns that work with with <laughs> Dr. Brennan. And those have kind of rotated. I mean, they had like a an intern that was like in the first couple seasons and then he ended up going bad and going to prison. And then they had they have rotating interns in the last few seasons where every episode has a different intern, but they kind of rotate. So it's like the four, same four or five. And it's really interesting how they hit the stereotypes in their cast because they have like the, the African-American woman who's in charge of the lab. And they have with the interns, they usually kind of carry some of the stereotypes with the black man and the southern hick and the, yeah. <laughs> and then the bouncy girl who is... You know, I mean, they just, they kind of like yeah. hit all the stereotypes and, and rotate them through. Bones' personality actually latches onto those stereotypes from those, from the sole point of that they have developed as a stereotype because they are frequently reflected, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, stereotypes are stereotypes because so many people from the country, you know, present these characteristics or so many people from the inner city present these characteristics and bones doesn't seem to understand the uh 
impropriety. <laughs> yeah, they just goes right over just her head. Petty, yeah. <laughs> she just completely, you know, people will be talking about it and she'll just like be, what? You know, I don't get yeah. it. <laughs> That's one of her favorite lines, in fact, is I don't understand. <laughs> I bet her HR department just loved her. <laughs> One of the dislikes that I have, and this happens a lot in these type of shows, is the the arch villain that that kind of spans a season or two of mm-hmm. episodes. Uh, the, and early on in the season, they had the grave digger who would bury people alive, and they and it turned out this villain was just so smart that they had a hard time keeping her in prison. And then once she got knocked off, then they got. Another villain on that was this computer hacker who keeps changing his identities every time they try and catch him. And mm-hmm. that one is still active in what I'm watching now. And I just can't stand it whenever he comes up in an episode because I just I really don't care for the whole arch villain thing. I I actually prefer them having a different villain or a different murderer that they catch in each episode. And I, I like that much more. And also the show does tend to take pot shots at Christians and conservatives. It's happened like more than so once. so many. Yeah. And not quite as bad it, as they are nowadays. I think it, being an older show, they were at least a little more careful in, yeah. in how they, they handled that. But two of the episodes that I want to talk about in, briefly that really stuck out to me, one of them was season eight, episode 11. The title was The Archaeologist in the Cocoon. And this was a episode where they actually did cast a character as a young earth creationist. And interestingly enough, he was building a museum. He was a pastor of a church and he was using his money that he'd gotten through oil to fund expeditions. By funding the expeditions, he would then own any archaeological finds and, and then he would hide them away so true scientists couldn't get a hold of them. So it was a bit of a, of a stereotype that they were mm-hmm. blowing out of proportion. And it really stuck out to me that they, they took advantage of that situation to, to make somebody, even though it turned out he wasn't the bad guy in that episode, he wasn't the murderer, but they took advantage of the opportunity to make digs, subtle digs at, you know, creationists as being unscientific. Yeah. As, as a young earth creationist myself and who has many friends who are, uh, creation scientists who love science. <laughs> I kind of took that personally, though it was a good episode. I'm, I thought they did a very good job of pointing out, even though they didn't realize they were doing it, how archaeology is very much a lot of uh, making up stories <laughs> yeah. because they had this, the whole idea was that they had these Neanderthal bones that had been found. They weren't found in situ, which means that somebody had already dug them up and all they had mm. was a bunch of bones. And they put together this whole elaborate story about how they'd killed each other and about how the little the little three-year-old girl had curled up with her dead parents to die. And yeah, was, I remember that one. Yeah, they just made up this massive story that was supposedly, you know, that they were solving forensic crimes, but they all they had were the bones. They didn't find – they didn't have any information about how they'd been dug up, so – you know, it was they, just like at the end of the episode, didn't they hint something about that it was turned out to be interbreeding between the mm-hmm. Neanderthals Neanderthal and the and Homo sapiens? Homo sapiens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember now. In fact, I looked up some reviews, and even from 
not coming at it from a creation standpoint, which I come at it from. It was even anthropologists and archaeologists thought it was a stupid episode. So they, <laughs> they really burned themselves on that one. So the other one that really stood out to me was in season five, episode 10, and it was called uh, Goop on the Girl. And it was the Christmas episode for season five. And there were a couple things that really stood out about that particular episode. Number one, Daisy, who is one of the rotating interns, every time they would ask her to take part in the Christmas celebration, she would say, oh, I don't celebrate Christmas in December because that's not the actual date of Jesus's birth. And I just thought that was refreshing, not necessarily that she wouldn't celebrate Christmas, but that they admitted that the whole reason for Christmas was because of Jesus's birth, yeah. which kind of gets lost in our culture these days. It's like everything's about Santa Claus and reindeer and that she was completely adamant that there was no reason to even celebrate Christmas because that wasn't when he was actually born. And I was like, wow, they admit the true origins of Christmas. Now, the actual story of that episode, or it was actually started out as being this guy who robbed the bank. And it turns out he had a bomb on him. He he was like a kidnap victim. But when they tried to apprehend him, the bomb went off and blew him into bits. So all they had to do was like gather all the evidence to try and figure out why he had robbed the bank. And then they found out that he was a kidnap victim. And the last words they had heard right before the bomb went off was hate speech that was coming out of the vest, which turned out to be this broadcast from this conservative, which, of course, they always want to make the conservatives look like the ones that are bigots and hateful and all this kind of stuff. They were looking for a, like a Rush Limbaugh type character from yeah, him correctly. Yeah. So he, they ended up, you know, tracking this guy down and he just basically broadcast out of his garage on like a, I guess like an AM or something where it was something that he could do locally kind of thing. And it was just a lot of, you know, harangues against the government and against, you know, different things. And it had a lot of hateful language in it. But it he turned out not to be the bad guy. There were some other people that had used his his words as like the ignition on the bomb or something like that. I wasn't entirely sure I understood the point. But the reason why it stood out to me was that they ended the episode with him doing his final broadcast. And the words from that just really struck home, actually brought tears to my eyes, because I don't know who wrote, I, I suppose I could look it up, but I didn't bother to look to, to see who wrote that particular episode. But they were very sensitive to the true meaning of Christmas and what it means to be redeemed. And it was all in the words of his final broadcast. A man died this week. By all accounts, he was a good man. Loved his mother, worked hard shouldered his responsibilities as a man that any one of us would be proud to call friend star of wonder in the heavens I killed him with this microphone I killed him by going on these airwaves and sharing my rage with you spreading my rage say that it wasn't my fault it was a coincidence i thought about that thought about it a lot but the fact is the fact is if it weren't for me he might still be alive i'm so sorry for that 
And I remembered something that I forgot over the last few years. That God is not only a God of anger and vengeance. Now my religious beliefs tell me that Christ did not die in vain. That he died to redeem us all. And I intend to show that this good, simple man also did not die in vain. That he redeemed one angry, shouting man. So these are the last words I will ever broadcast. And I hope they're the words you remember best. Peace on earth. And that just really struck home with me. You know, that not only would this show put those words on, yeah, you know, somebody actually talking about Christ dying to redeem us and and all of that. And they put that at the end of the episode. I was just like, whoa, <laughs> that is I think it's going to go down as my favorite episode. I haven't finished the series yet, but I can't mm-hmm. see it getting any better than that, to be honest. <laughs> you know, that that quote actually brings to mind a, a scripture for me. Uh, one that I, I recently put up on my wall in, in my office. It's uh, James 1, 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Yeah, yeah. You don't solve the world's problems with hate and anger. <laughs> yeah, and in, this, in the, the recent political climate, it just seems so apropos to me. Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, definitely. From both sides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I completely agree with you and that that is something that we need to, as Christians, be a little less defensive and a little quicker with the gospel to answer with God's word instead of with our feelings and our emotions and our, uh, and, and, and feeling offense all the time. Because some of the things that we hold against the liberal world is that they they take offense too easily, and we shouldn't uh, fight that by taking offense in return. Yeah, and and I think that that's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed watching the show so much is that there are so many opportunities to take offense, but at the same time you can just listen to the dialogue and and get to understand the characters and and let them speak to you from their own worldviews and and then. As we do in this show, you know, apply scripture to it. Go ahead and right. think about uh, how would you respond to that person if you did meet them on the street? How would you respond to a Brennan, you know, somebody who's just so terse and, you know, factual that she can't take any kind of feelings into it? I mean, I don't even know if if I were, you know, teamed up with her in real life, how I would talk to her because of her inability to even think about something from a spiritual standpoint. In uh, 1 Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that is one of the, the things that we as Christians need to always be ready to give an answer, to be ready to speak truth into somebody's life and do it humbly uh, and not, and not um, with you know, attack in mind, you know, not to win an argument. Our our point should never be to win an argument. Our point should be to glorify God. 
And this is kind of interesting to bring this up. But in Proverbs 26, four through six, it says, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. <laughs> answer a fool according to his foolishness, or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And some people have taken that that dual verse as a contradiction, because it says don't answer, but answer. And I think I heard I think it was actually Ken Ham at Answers in Genesis once uh, wrote an article about that and that it, the way to understand that is that you're not supposed to try to answer them within their foolishness, like don't argue their foolishness, but mm-hmm. come at them with a rational argument that is outside of their foolishness and point out to them why their argument is foolish, but do it from outside of their argument, not within their argument. So it's a... Splitting hairs, but it is there. And the reason I bring that up is because I really feel like Brennan is a bit of a fool. And I, I but, she's very yeah. rational and she's very scientific, but she has absolutely no common sense. And the longer you go in the show, it's like, how does this lady even survive? Because <laughs> she has no common sense, no social skills. And she can't talk to people and she doesn't understand where she's wrong and and telling her she's wrong, just, you know, she can't take it if somebody challenges her. So I think that she definitely fits the fool in that verse. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but one of the study aids that I use when I'm studying scriptures, I'll frequently go back to what's called the Amplified Bible. Have you ever Mm -hmm. used that? Yes. What the amplified for for those who aren't familiar with it, what the Amplified Bible does is it it has the literal translation, and then in, in square brackets, um, it adds the the cultural how how it would have been culturally translated at the time. So it provides sort of cultural context, and and the way that those two verses read. In the Amplified Bible, I thought was interesting. It says, do not answer, and then bracket, nor pretend to agree with the frivolous comments of, and bracket, a bracket, closed-minded fool, according to his folly. Otherwise, you, even you, will be like him. And then answer, bracket, and correct the erroneous concepts of, and bracket, a fool, according to his folly. Otherwise, he will be wise in his own eyes. So I, I like the way that it, it uh, backs up what Ken Ham was saying with breaking those two verses out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not contradicting each other. They're yeah, they're kind of getting a different shade on there. It's just the way that it's translated into English. I think loses some of its context there. <sighs> So that's Bones. As I said, I'll probably finish watching it. So far, it hasn't offended me enough that I've had to stop watching it. And I've got a little over four more seasons to watch. And <laughs> we'll, we'll see yeah, how you don't quickly binge, I get You don't want to binge that one. <laughs> Let's see. It's a 12, 45-minute episodes. Yeah, you'd be watching until you're uh, 320. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my math might be off. Yeah, I was going to say, some of the seasons are not as long as others, which I found interesting. You know, some of them go to 24 episodes, and some of them only have 12 or 13 episodes. So it's interesting that not all of them are full seasons. But yeah. And you know, seasons seasons are getting shorter uh, as years go on, too. I want to say 
most seasons nowadays are only like 13 episodes. I think some of that comes from the streaming, too, because yeah. the, the streaming services do shorter se- series seasons. Yep. Yeah. So the first one I wanted to talk about, it only has five episodes so far. So <laughs> there's not quite as much to talk about as opposed to the 12 seasons of Bones. But Masterpiece Theater on PBS right now is showing uh, a series based on the writings of James Harriet, who is a fictional veterinary surgeon in Yorkshire Dales in the town of Derby, which is also fictional in England. But it's also, James Harriet is also the pen name of a real veterinary surgeon who worked in Yorkshire Dales in the 1930s to the 1970s in the real town of, uh, I think it was called Flisk. But he wrote a, a big series of books, and the first two are made into a, a series that has been done in both film and television, I want to say five times. This this is like the the fourth rendition of it, and... <laughs> Back in 1975, I think, when the first, when it was first being put to film, James Harriet was played by none other than uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins before he was Sir Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> the whole series is, is following James Harriet as he, uh, it picks up when he has graduated from veterinary college in uh, 1939. And is struggling to find a job. And he ends up hiring on as a, uh, as an assistant to the veterinary surgeon of, uh, Darby, a, a farming community in, in Yorkshire Dales, which is a real area just south of the English Scottish border. So all the actors are true to the uh, the accents of the area and you know it's masterpiece theater so everything is just so beautifully done mm-hmm. the the scenery is breathtaking it's sort of funny uh, how it all ties in the car that that james gets to run out to on his uh veterinary visits has some issues <laughs> <laughs> It, I want to say it's like a 1920s Plymouth, uh, not a Plymouth, but uh, a uh, an English make, and the brakes don't always work. <laughs> there are certain hills where you can't use the brakes going down because if you do, you won't make it back up the other side. And it's the way it all ties in, you know, the, the flavor of small towns uh, worldwide of how everybody knows each other. There's one episode where you learn uh, just how ethical and devoted James is to his job when there is a uh, racehorse, the only racehorse in the town, and he's favored to win this upcoming big race. He's owned by the richest guy in town, the, the, you know, the big landowner that many of the people are tenants of, and he gets called to address a bout of collie with the horse. And in his examination, he determines that um, he that the horse actually has something called a torsion of the bowels. And it's so the 
the condition is so advanced that the horse's intestines have already turned necrotic. And mm. his only only choice is to take this beautiful, absolutely gorgeous, majestic, I want to say two or three-year-old horse, and put him down. And he, the way that the actor who plays Harriet portrays the entire episode is just heart-wrenching. I mean, he feels so strongly about not letting this animal suffer and he actually he actually puts the animal down against the wishes of the of the horse's keeper i don't know what he would be called and the horse's owner both of them saying we're wait, we're going to wait for a second opinion get your boss over here and james was like absolutely not this animal is in absolutely horrendous pain mm. And that that episode just it really made me feel it. You know, it it hit me in the gut because it was just June first of last year that our sixteen year old cocker spaniel had uh, developed a brain tumor, and over the course of three or four days, he had a series of seizures that were just getting worse and worse, and we made the decision with the advice of uh, our vet and uh, had to put him down and you know all the the pain that that we felt when we had to put down this lifelong family member yeah you know it, it was written on the actor's face just so clearly and that moment i was like this series is great I could really sympathize with him. And the series of books is actually one of my mother's favorite series uh, that she talked about a lot when I was younger. I've never gotten around to listening to or reading them. So uh, I'm really enjoying, you know, coming into the, the events that the series is presenting with a completely fresh view. And, you know, for me, it has wonderfully understated British humor <laughs> that isn't, you know, the Monty Python-esque humor mm -hmm. that we normally associate with the Brits, but it's it's humor based on believable events and honest situations, and it's humor that, that just feels pure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you don't feel guilty about laughing at it. Little cleaner than what's common these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, uh, one of the episodes is sort of like a hazing episode, where the uh, Siegfried, the the vet that he's the assistant to, and his brother and their housekeeper all have bets on how long it's going to take James to lose his temper over this job that he's been giving of being the vet of the county fair. <laughs> Mm. And he's just so uh, so mild-mannered and likable a guy. And he's dealing with people who are like – there's one, one scene where he's judging horses for the pony competition. And uh, people are bringing in these full-sized horses and trying to get away with 
stuff like a certificate from their vet saying that the horse is only this tall, so he doesn't have to measure them. He doesn't have to measure them, <laughs> which he won't accept. And an owner who has this trick of pricking the horse with a, a needle right between the shoulder blades every time he goes to get measured, and that forces the horse down onto his knees so he can't be measured right. And apparently the measurement is very important somehow, but it's funny watching him deal with each of these cheats. Yeah. And eventually he, you know, the the, the episode culminates to them all being in the, uh, the local pub because, you know, it's England. And finally he just loses it. And he chews everyone out for, for dishonesty and pettiness and he just, you know, lets loose with, with everything that he's been feeling and, and keeping, keeping inside, but it's all very wholesome. Yeah. And, uh, everybody drops their head in shame. And, you know, of, of course it, it almost ends with one of the guys that he just chewed out walking over to him and, and handing him a pint and saying, we deserve that. But then it goes to the goes to Siegfried, his brother, and the housekeeper, and the housekeeper won the bet <laughs> because because he lasted past three forty five in the afternoon. It's all so so fun, and the themes throughout it are are uh, uh, how James deals with the difficult people in such a a Christ like way, even though so far. They haven't really brought faith into it at all. The way he's doing it is is just so a good role model, I guess, is what I'm looking for. If I can be half that understanding and persistent and, you know, have those values, and I, I would say I'm doing well. Yeah. He respects and loves everything, everyone that he works with, and and he does it all while he's learning not just the difference between veterinary college and being an actual country doctor, a country vet, but the difference between being a a, a young man in school and, and a child and being an adult in the real world. And there's just so much to recommend. And for me, you know, the, the title, All Creatures Great and Small, I want to say it's actually... The original title was All God's Creatures Great and Small, but I don't know when they actually took God out of that title, or even if they did. But uh, it's it's based on Psalm 104, 24, and 25. How countless are your works, Lord, and wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And there's the poem, actually the poem and the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, uh, from 1848, which contributes heavily to Harriet's titles. There was one other scripture that stood out to me. In this particular case, I went away from my normal translation of CSB back to the New King James, because this is the one that's always stuck in my mind. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to the end. And that's Ecclesiastes 3.11. And I'm in shock. 
<laughs> that I finally used an Ecclesiastes quote or an yeah. Ecclesiastes verse. One of your two favorite books of the Bible. Yeah. That that verse just demonstrates to me that you know the beauty and the the wonder of this show because it it is such a a beautiful demonstration of God's creation, all the animals and and everything that happens. Even it seems that there is an absurd number of situations that requires the vet to stick his arm up in the animal in the most disturbing places. <laughs> But even that is, you know, it speaks to the wonder of the creation. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, you, you're marveling at this. And one of the shows that I stick in and watch every so often on Disney Plus uh, under the Nat Geo is the Incredible Dr. Pole, mm-hmm. which has been going on for seasons. And he's a real life vet who lives in Michigan. And he does, he's a country vet and he does all, probably all the things that the fictional vet in All Creatures Great and Small does, you know. And <laughs> it, it's really fascinating because just the, the real life aspect of it that what you, what you like about All Creatures Great and Small are things that really happen in Dr. Pole. Yeah. And it's not fictional because this is a, a real life show where it's following him along on his, in his real life practice. And he does the county fair. He's the veterinarian on call for the county fairs and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think I was just listening to you going, be, being very fascinated by that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yes, he sticks his hands up the butts of cows quite a bit. So yeah. <laughs> that's how they do pregnancy checks. So even nowadays, that's how they do pregnancy checks. If it ain't broke. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very old school vet, too, which is one of the things that makes it such an interesting show. Moving on from there, we actually had a recommendation from Andrew Rappaport, our network manager, to talk about the movie Run, Hide, Fight, which is a release of the Daily Wire. They're starting to get into fictional content now. The Daily Wire is, if if you don't not familiar with it, it's uh, Ben Shapiro's conservative uh, broadcasting organization where he it has his podcast and radio show plus multiple other they just Candace Owens has just joined their group because Hollywood has slipped so far left they want to be able to produce content that is right centered and right to center instead of all the way to the left and so this year they are going to start producing movies and distributing TV shows and movies and that kind of stuff but like most streaming services you have to have a membership in order to watch yeah. it. So I already had a membership to the Daily Wire. And so I uh, watched this movie when it, I actually watched it when they premiered it. And it's called Run, Hide, Fight. And it's a movie that was made, I think it was made several years ago. And it was actually had a, a mainstream distributor and was going to, they'd already uh, filmed it and were in final production when the Parkland High School in Florida, the school shooting happened down there. And I guess it became too sensitive a topic. And so everybody yanked the rug out from underneath them and the movie got shelved. And when the Daily Wire came out publicly saying they wanted to start distributing movies that were more right to center, the producer or the director and writer of the film uh, came, approached them and said, hey, will you consider distributing this movie? It's already made. We don't, it's just sitting there and we can't do anything with it. And, uh, and so the Daily Wire has released it on their service and 
It's about a school shooting, which is the reason why it got pulled before. And it is, I guess what you would call kind of like a female diehard, because there's like a teenage girl who basically almost single-handedly takes on the bad guys and <laughs> wins the day. And she gets shot in the leg and beat up and she keeps going. So it's it's kind of a unrealistic in that aspect. But yeah. She does have a father who's taught her how to hunt. It starts out, the beginning of the movie starts out with her hunting a deer with her dad, and the deer doesn't die when she shoots it. And so he starts to tell her that there comes a hard time when you have to, you know, put an animal out of its misery. And she just picks up a rock and slams it down on the deer's head and kind of like shocks you all like, oh, this girl has no... Emotional, you know, hold holdings, holdbacks or anything. But you find out that her mother had passed away from cancer and her and her father are a bit estranged because neither of them are dealing well with her mother's death. And she hasn't put it into perspective. In fact, she she keeps hallucinating her mother talking to her. And so she and her best friend, who is the guy that's kind of over the yearbook and uh, go to school. And it turns out that he's planning to ask her to go to the prom with him and she doesn't want to go. She's like emotionally stunted. She just wants school to end so that she can get on with her life kind of thing. And so she's kind of withdrawn from everybody. And they're in the cafeteria and he pops the question and she doesn't react well to it and something gets spilled on her. So she leaves and goes to the bathroom to get herself cleaned up. And she's drying herself under the, you know, the the hand dryer thing that's making a loud noise. And while she's in there, somebody drives a van into the windows of the cafeteria and pulls out guns and starts shooting, just shooting people. And they take over the school and she doesn't even know what's going on until she's starting to leave the bathrooms. A girl comes in through the door, just bleeding and dies in her arms. And so it's a, it's a very traumatic movie to watch because a lot of people die in it and there's a lot of blood and language and it's not exactly uh, something that you would want your teenagers or even young children to watch uh, because of the stress and the, the high action of the movie. But it does deal with a topic that is on people's minds a lot. You know, how do we deal with gun safety? What do we, how do we make our schools more secure? Uh, how do we prepare our teenagers to go through something like that? And I mean, the, the thought of sending your kids to school when some idiot could do that is is scary. I don't know how parents deal with it, to be honest. Yeah. One of the things that they really point out in the movie is that the way that schools are dealing with these threats is not necessarily the right way to deal with them. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why this movie got blacklisted, because the bad guys in this movie are a set of students who have literally found every hole in the school's procedure for dealing with a shooting and exploited it. So mm. they know they know what it takes to get the teachers and the students to lock down in their rooms. They know how to prevent the school office from calling the police. They have it all set up because the the school's procedure for dealing with a shooting is public is public knowledge. So all they had to do is look it up and find all the holes in it and exploit them all. Huh. And so they are they are literally exploiting every hole in the procedure. And and it's it's only because this girl fights back that they even uh, are stopped. The the title of the movie Run Hide Fight is actually from the procedure the procedure book that you have for dealing with an active shooter. 
And if you look it up online, almost all of them, no matter which ones you come at, are usually broken up under those headings. You're, if you can run away, do so. If there is any way that you can have a clear line of escape, take it and only call for help once you are free of the situation. If you can't run, then you're supposed to hide. And if you, you find some place behind, preferably behind solid walls, and you silence your cell phone and you stay as quiet as, quiet as possible so as not to be heard, and you stay in hiding as, as long as you can. And if you can't run or you can't hide and your life is in immediate danger, then you should look around for weapons, recruit others to help, and ambush the attackers if possible. And if you do so, you need to commit without reservation to causing severe and lethal damage to your attacker. And those are the three steps. Mm-hmm. And if, like I said, if you look up any of the active shooter protocols, those are the steps. And so they named the movie based on that. And this is the progression that she goes through. She starts out by fleeing. She actually gets out of the school and is running away when she realizes that there are, are classrooms full of students still in the school who have no clue what's going on. So she starts running around the school, knocking on windows, trying to get people's attention to flee if they can. And she actually helps an entire classroom of kids out through their window. And then she climbs in and then decides to run down the hall to pull the fire alarm to try and get more people to leave. And so she's then inside the school and ends up uh, one-on-one with one of the attackers. And so she ends up having to try and hide from her. And at each one of those situations, her mother appears to her and tells her to do those things. So the first time her mother is the one that tells her to run. And then when she sees the the girl that's part of the attacking group coming down the hallway, her mother appears and tells her to hide And then when she realizes that her hiding place has been compromised, her mother appears and tells her to fight. And so she takes on the attackers one at a time. And so it's a progression because each time she sees her mother, the activity, the action and the stuff that she's being required to do helps her deal with her grief over the loss of her mother. And each time she sees her mother, her mother has progressed uh, to a uh, the first time she's seeing her, she looks like she's dying of cancer. She has her head wrapped in a towel. The next time she's wearing real clothes and her hair is to normal. And so by the time she sees her, her mother, the last time her mother is like she was before the cancer, like, and, mm. and she gets to say a final goodbye to her mom and lay to rest that part of her life. So it's, um, it's all a, a really interesting movie of dealing with, you know, the trauma of an active shooter situation, the trauma of losing a mother and and learning to uh, get past the grief and live your life anyway and to put others up before yourself. Because in in reality, she had the chance to get away and she decided to put herself back at risk to go in and protect the others that were still at risk of these shooters. And from a scriptural standpoint, it's really kind of hard to deal with this topic because I don't know as Christians that we are necessarily called to fight against attackers. So the running and hiding part may fit, but the fighting not so much. But it also means that we should not live in fear. And I think that they took instances of some of the real famous school shootings, you know, like they had the one girl who was asked um, in the cafeteria about her faith and she's, and she stands up for her faith and is shot. 
which was a instance that happened in the Columbine. So it was a real, real yeah. thing. They pulled some of these, you know, stories from from real life situations and and replayed them in this movie. And so you get to kind of see that kind of standpoint of being able to stand up for your faith and not living in fear. So one of the scriptures that came to mind for me was, don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill a soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew ten twenty eight. And then in Second Timothy one seven it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And in Isaiah forty one ten it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will ho- hold on to you with my righteous right hand. And that is the even as we live in a culture where I think Christians are becoming more fearful of persecution, we used to be able to be very free in our culture. And now we're kind of the scapegoat and the bad guy all the time. Yeah, This is kind of a good reminder to us that we're not to fear men, that we're supposed to hold tight to our faith and let God stand up and fight our battles for us. Out of curiosity, what was their end game? What were they after? You got the feeling that they were they were wanting to prove that there were holes in in the school but they were bad guys i mean they they wasn't in any altruistic thing they were just exploiting right. the holes and they didn't intend to get out alive then i i think that well the bad the the leader of the group did and he actually did get out alive and she chased him down at the end of the movie so in fact, she get to replay the thing with the deer where she she shoots him and and doesn't kill him and it kind of flashes to her mind that she's not to leave him to suffer, but she decides to leave him to suffer anyway and walks away. <laughs> so a little different dealing with a person than a deer, but especially yeah. a bad guy who needs to stand justice for. And th- and there was a scene in the movie, her, her dad was actually a, I think that he was sniper. And at one point, she's running from one of the attackers, and he's watching the school from a, a hilltop, because once he found out what was going on, he came on site with his gun. And he sees that she's being attacked by a guy that's twice her size, and he shoots him through the window. And, and so at the end of the movie, he's actually been taken into custody, because he uh, shot somebody. And so she's able to reconcile with her dad through the door of the of the cop car as they're <laughs> pulling pulling away with him in custody. So, but yeah, it was a very interesting movie. I, I wouldn't recommend it to people unless they're willing to deal with the amount of violence that's in it. It's definitely rated R. It's not a kind of movie that that we would typically review. But since I watched it and and Andrew mm-hmm. Rappaport had mentioned it, I thought I would would talk about it briefly. Two things in the news recently that uh, sort of tie into this is um, the actress who played uh, Cara Dune from The Mandalorian, the re- the lady from wrestling, Gina uh, Carano, I think is her name. She signed on to do productions with Daily Wire. Oh, cool. That'll be interesting. I'm curious to see what they come up with, you know, in the future, because this one was obviously not one they produced. It was just one that made it was made available yeah. to them. It, it could be interesting. I'm more center than than the Daily Wire is, so I, I, I'm interested in seeing where they go with this. The other thing that comes to mind is I saw an article today from CBN News that Kevin Sorbo of Hercules fame, who mm-hmm. is a very outspoken Christian, 
has had his uh, Facebook account deleted. Yeah. And you had said something about how we're not as free to, to share our faith today as, as we were in the past. And that just reminded me. It's, I don't know. None of the articles that I saw, and I, I went to three different ones, gave any indication as to why his account was suspended. They all said that uh, there was no indication yet as to why the account was uh, suspended. But it was his, you know, verified account with five hundred thousand followers. So I hope it is not, but I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing more, not less, of that in the future. Yeah, we're people who speak out against sinful behavior, who refuse to toe the line on the LGBT party line. I can't think of you know the phrase I was going to use. Agenda. Uh, our <laughs> agenda. Thank you. That that was it. Where they're just going to be uh, victims of you know the the cancel culture. Mm-hmm. I had, I put up in my Facebook feed recently about how the the Catholic newsletter had their Twitter account suspended because they referred to the new Secretary of Health as the transgender uh, the transgender man who identifies as a woman. And they classified it as hate speech. A biological man who identifies that's, as a transgender woman. Yeah. Yeah. Which I I don't I don't see it. Yeah. I see fact. I don't see hate speech. Yeah. So I, I can't help but to wonder, you know, is this gonna happen to all of us eventually? I don't know. Maybe being forced off social media would be good for society. <laughs> the problem is, is it's just going to end up dividing us. Is they'll they'll have their social media and and we'll have our social media, and we cease to have good conversations back and forth because one yeah we get we end up being canceled whichever one that we don't agree with. So, so it's interesting uh, that that you did run hide fight because I also did something that is. Based around fighting. Mm-hmm. It was originally a YouTube, I think it was called YouTube Red back then, series, Cobra Kai, which is uh, revisiting the world of the Karate Kid. Mm. And I I did some reading on, on how this came to be. The intellectual property of the Karate Kid is actually uh, owned by, you know, several people, but among them are Will Smith you know the fresh prince will smith yeah and uh cuz he did the se- he was involved in the second one, the remake of it yeah yeah it was it, it, he i i feel like i remember that he actually bought it so that his son so he could use it as a uh, a vehicle for his son mhm and uh ralph macchio the guy who played danny larusso they apparently macchio said that you know they had been pitched several times over the years different ways to get to get back to this story and to uh not reboot it but to to revisit the the life and the one that finally made them have interest was let's tell the story 30 years down the road from the viewpoint of Johnny Lawrence the kid that Danny be in the first Karate Kid. Johnny has let that defeat from the first Karate Kid movie define him. It just broke his will 
and he went on to live the next 30 plus years as an alcoholic and he becomes a deadbeat dad and the entire time he's blaming Danny LaRusso and by extension uh, Mr. Miyagi for his troubles. This series goes on to show how Lawrence's entire viewpoint was poisoned by the training that Cobra Kai had given him through the Cobra Kai motto of strike first, strike hard, and show no mercy. And that's actually one of the reasons that I have enjoyed this series. It's it's only three seasons so far, and each season has 10 episodes, but it's taken me, I want to say, almost a year, <laughs> almost a year to watch it. To, because you know it's I've only been able to to watch these thirty minute to thirty thirty five minute episodes on my lunch breaks and what have you yeah but um it's refreshing because it one of the one of the the big things about empathy when you're dealing with uh when you're dealing with difficult people at work or at church or you know just out in the public is you try to put yourselves in their shoes you try to to see the world how they're seeing it or see the situation how they're seeing it and as christians it really helps us to to come to love even our enemies and this this series cobra kai really lets you walk in johnny's shoes and sees it brings you in and it shows you how broken a man he's become and then it goes through a really, I don't want to say powerful because it's its a little irreverent at times, but a, a really good redemption arc for, for Johnny. Uh, but it's not a complete one. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of realistic in that way. Is It's not one big epiphany where, you know, the bad guy turns good. It's little steps throughout all three seasons, and that makes it that much more enjoyable for me because he, you get to see the process of getting up and falling down and getting up and falling down and learning everything each time he does. He goes back to his booze every once in a while, but then it faithfully shows the consequences of that action. And uh, each time it shows him learning a little bit from it. And usually that learning is from observing the impact that his actions have had on people that he's starting to care for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for being based on a 1980s popcorn flick that had about as much depth as a birdbath... <laughs> It really is rewarding in that way where they aren't afraid to go into the deep end, but they still keep it light in the 1980s sort of way. Mm -hmm. And uh, on top of that, it, it shows both Johnny Lawrence and Danny LaRusso as both having good and bad things about them. Yeah. Not one dimensional. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, Danny isn't this beat-on kid that you saw in the movie anymore. He is a, a more fleshed-out character who has trouble being a good dad. And 
you know, he goes through as many stages of growth as Johnny does just from a different source. Yeah. And the nice thing is that there's all the next generation in there. Uh, Johnny Lawrence's estranged uh, son who's in, you know, junior in high school or whatever. And his new pupil, because he starts back up Cobra Kai, his star pupil who just has this skill named Miguel and, you know, it, the play with them. And, and Danny has his teenage daughter who, you know, we get to see different levels of maturity through all three and how that maturity uh, is adjusting with the lessons that they're learning through the karate and through watching how their, their senseis and their, their parents and the people they admire are all dealing with these difficult concepts. So I really have enjoyed it. I'm actually looking forward to season four coming out. Uh, season three ends with a, uh, I, I don't want to say too much here because it, it really would spoil it. But it ends with a very solid feeling relationship where all the characters have settled into and, and it feels right. You know, it, it feels like it's right on track. Sort of like when you're going to, uh, to put a screw into a, into a hole and it, it goes right in on the first try and you don't <laughs> have to sit there fumbling or, or when you're plugging in a USB cable and you manage to get it right on the first try instead of having to flip it over four times. <laughs> It, it it's that feeling of it fits. Yeah. So this one was of interest to me because it centers on two feuding dojos, Miyagi Do, which is based on the karate that uh, Mister Miyagi teaches Daniel in the three Karate Kid movies, and which is actually based on Miyagi's family from you know a hundred years prior to that. And Cobra Kai, which Johnny restarted and eventually goes about, he learns in his teaching his students, it becomes clear to him the problems with the philosophy that Cobra Kai taught when he was in it. But they draw the line very clearly between Miyagi-Do being all about self-defense and Cobra Kai being about uh, offense, uh, you know, the best defense is a good offense and, and all that, which shows through the, the motto of strike first, strike hard and no mercy. And over the course of the series, Johnny comes to learn that no mercy should actually be show mercy. He's starting to understand the the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, no, the true meaning of karate, you know. Yeah as presented by the uh, the show. But I, when looking for scriptures to discuss this, I ran into the same problem that you did with Run, Hide, Fight. And there's not a lot of scripture to back up uh, fighting for yourself. As a matter of fact, the first one that always comes to mind when it comes to fighting is two verses from Matthew, Matthew 5, 39 says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And there's Matthew 26, 52 through 54. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide 
me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels, then how would the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? When you look at the entirety of scripture, there are a couple times where even Christ talks about a man defending himself, but he goes on to show, and I, I actually forgot to write this one down. I'll put it in the show notes that a properly armed man who stands and defends himself is still nothing when a stronger man comes along and takes all those weapons. Yeah. And Christ is talking about the only, you know, sure thing is God in the <laughs> end. <laughs> but uh, Proverbs twenty five twenty six came up in my search as well. A righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddied spring or polluted well. You know, it, it suggests that constantly yielding to a wicked person, specifically, I would think, to wicked actions, is going to have long-term effects and make life miserable or impossible moving on. I mean, it's throughout history, you know, entire towns have had to have been abandoned when the town well went bad. So when it comes to biblical support of fighting, really, our fight is from God. He is our arms and our armor are the word of God and, and our faith. Right. Yeah. You kind of have to almost mine the Old Testament for, for any find any kind of verses that says to stand and fight. And it was interesting as we were trying to look for scripture before we started recording, it was like I was pointing out the fact that so many, if you look this up, so many scriptures are taken out of context in the Old Testament, at, you know, that people yeah. try to use for standing your ground and fighting. And it's like uh, a lot of those were direct commandments to the Israelites when they were taking Canaan. And we are not as Christians, we are not Israel. And so we can't apply those verses to us. We have to go. It, it doesn't mean the Old Testament is not useful. There is a lot of useful stuff in there, but a lot of it is historical. And so you can't take historical voice verses and apply them to our Christian life other than to, to know that God is active and in control and that he will fight for us. If, if there's something that requires fighting, you know, God will fight for yeah. us. And I don't know that, that necessarily means that we should be pacifists and, and stand down, but I think that we need to be careful that our actions do not, destroy the gospel, that we are always glorifying right. God in our actions. Yeah, it really ties back to the James verse I, I referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Right. And, you know, that ties back to how a parent should be disciplining a child. Mm -hmm. Today's society is all about how spanking is bad, but spanking isn't bad as long as you don't ever do it angry. Yeah. You know, it's a tool to be used in discipline. And right. because of my upbringing, I didn't feel I could ever spank properly, so I never spanked my kids. But not all spanking is bad. And in the same way, not all fighting is bad, but you have to make sure that it is righteous. Right. It, it can't be your anger fueling it. You have to be completely armored in God's word to be righteously fighting. If you're going to stand up to pr protect your loved ones and and to be a shield for others, 
it's necessary to know how to not just be some uh, a body that's going to be pushed out of the way. And I think that our opportunities to fight should always not necessarily be for ourselves as a selfish thing. Yeah. But as in defense or to stand up for to protect others. And I think that that is where it becomes valuable for a Christian to know how to fight, not necessarily in self-defense, but in defense of others. And like I said, don't just be a shield. Don't just be if you're going to stand up to protect somebody. Don't just be the the person that gets mown down before they shoot the the other person. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Paul put it best in Romans 12, verse 18. He said, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Right. Yes. Well, before we close up the episode, I do want to present some of the things that our friends on our Facebook group shared in their viewing habits. Ethan Hill said that he has recently watched The Village, which he found to be a very interesting film. He said he thought that the suspense was quite tastefully done and that they relied more on what you didn't see to build attention. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that I actually haven't seen. Uh, I've heard a lot of people talk this about it. This is the M. Night Shyamalan one, right? Yes. I yeah, have, I've seen this one. I haven't seen it, though. I've heard a lot of people. I know how it ends, so it kind of defeats the purpose <laughs> of seeing it. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that one really is a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. As many of his movies are, if you know how it ends, that kind of... Oh, yeah. He's yeah. big on that. Yeah. Ethan Hill quotes, this is a quote from him, What struck me in watching it was that these people were basically fleeing society as if to remove themselves from the evil that surrounded them and to create a haven of innocence. The only problem with that is that no matter how you stack the equation, as long as humans are involved, evil will still be present. The doctrine of original sin speaks clearly here. I kept hearing the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. How do you say that? <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. Uh, writing from his experiences in the gulags, if if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So that's a, a really good... That's an excellent observation. Warren Myers said that he and his wife just finished watching Away on Netflix. A couple quick thoughts from him was that it very respectfully handled one of the crew members' Judaism. It raised issues surrounding responsibilities of motherhood and wifehood versus duty to the mission. It very respectfully and positively handled a semi-main character's Catholicism and how he is living out his religion, maybe even his faith. And it delved into issues related to duty to country as paramount for one crew member versus duty to husband and family versus her love that is sinfully directed. And then he also said that he's watched The Queen's Gambit. Definitely a lot to talk through about addiction, pleasure seeking, attempting to find solace and completeness in things, activities, relationships and substances. He said it dealt with parental abuse, at least emotional and psychological, the value of mentors, even reticent ones, and thankfully it has some level of redemption. And then Isaiah Washington said that he's been watching a lot of Hawaii Five-0, the CBS <laughs> version. He says he loves the I show. I assume it's the new one and not the old one. Yeah, I started watching that on Netflix. I never made it all the way through. At least I think it was Netflix. I think I kind of got bored after a while. It was like started yeah. re- getting repetitive. 
He says he loves the show as it portrays great acts of loyalty, the importance of family and bravery within the line of duty and for their friends and for the innocent. So that's some of the, the feedback that we got from our listeners. Once again, I say if you want to join in and be able to give uh, feedback in advance of any of our episodes, uh, make sure that you join our group, at, which you can get to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community or just looking for Are You Just Watching on Facebook. Uh, we have a group and a page and the page is just our podcast page, but you can join the group. Uh, just que- answer a few questions to get in. On the page, do we have a link at the, a, a tagged link at the top? Yes, to the group we do. Yes. Okay, good. You can also support our podcast by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching? Uh, we are listener supported. We don't add commercials. If we do occasional ads, they're for our network. They're not commercials for anything beyond supporting our network. We want to give special thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman, who have been supporting us monthly. We'd love for you to join them. Thank you all. Yes, thank you so much. You can comment on the show notes for this episode, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 113. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail. You can email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And like I said, you can also uh, join our Facebook group. We are also looking at some of the other and newer media, uh, social media platforms. If there's one that you'd like to see us on, just let us know through one of those forms of communication and we'll see what it takes to gain a footing in some of these other platforms. But you can... Follow us on Twitter, which I am not tweeting. So right now, I'm not entirely sure it's worth you following me because I've kind of stopped tweeting even the episodes. It's just become a very toxic place to be. But I am on Twitter at E. Franklin. And I am still on Twitter, though I tweet very, very seldomly (laughs) and almost never check it. Although I do have it set up that if you tag me, I will get an email on it. Okay. So, you know, if you tag me, I'll see it. Yeah. But uh, I'm also on Twitter at Renchepple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And I do recommend that you subscribe to our podcast. We only come out with one episode a month, so it can kind of fall out of your vision if you're not subscribed, where it automatically gets uh, downloaded or added to your feed. We are in most of the places where you would ever come across podcasts. So you can look for us on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Podcasts and Google Podcasts and all of the... Soon to be on Al Jazeera. (laughs) So you can look for us on any of those locations. And if you can possibly do so, be sure to rate and review us because that kind of gives us more visibility to other listeners and we appreciate that i believe that's it we haven't decided what we're going to do for march but we will probably give our listeners in the group a heads up on that so once we be know nice if is. we could get back to theaters yes we're looking forward that, to that getting maybe back to still theaters. be a pipe dream though yeah. <laughs> definitely thank you so much for listening i'm e franklin i'm tim martin And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org, one stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. 
christianpodcastcommunity.org.